I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I saw the bow saw. The bow saw was laying on the trailer. And I remember looking down and seeing the blade, and it, it was stained, the blade. Um, I don't know if it was rust. I don't know. I, you know, but I, I, I do remember that because... You know, certain things to remember about a situation. You're looking at this trailer going, oh my God, what a stench. Hey guys, welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Bannock. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. They're on my couch looking like a cute little podcasting couple. Podcasting couple. <laughs> it's adorable. It is cute. We're recording at my apartment for the first time. Second, well, second time. time. Second time. We recorded yeah. Source Family here. It sounded like shit. Hopefully this episode sounds better. I hope. Fingers crossed. I'm sure it does. We have well, better we have better equipment now. And we have, we have Jared. And we have better Jared. company today. And we do. My parents are here. They're watching us. They're my audience. They're just like lo- lovingly. And my mom is laughing at me. Lovingly right now. staring at Jacqueline. It's the cutest thing ever. My dad is taking videos. <laughs> oh it's God. in a sense our first live show. It really is our first live show. It's our practice live show. No, they but are my favorite. And my parents do have a first degree story to the Raj Niche cult that we do have to do one day. Yes. It's a very. That would, oh my God. You told me that, about that, May. I would love to do that soon. I know. We have to do it. Yes. So if you guys are interested in uh, Raj Niche, if you watched Wild Wild Country, it's a very crazy story. We're doing that soon. We are doing that soon. Throwing it on the docket. Okay. Well, what day is it, Billy? There's a lot of days that we can pick from. Today is Don't Step on a Bee Day. I know. That was the nicest one. Yeah. You know, save the bees. It's uh, National Pina Colada Day. It's Teddy Bear Picnic Day, and I noticed that you actually have a Build-A-Bear. <laughs> oh, it's from Jared. A Build-A-Bear from Jared, who's wearing all denim. He's wearing a Canadian tuxedo, and and uh, he's wearing a Jared what, what looks outfit. Looks like work boots. Did he send this to you with the anniversary <laughs> gift? No, he sent this to me. We're gonna have, we'll, we'll post a picture on social. As like an early birthday. Let me see if I can see what it says. This is an urgent message for Jacqueline Van. Stop, my dearest Jacqueline. Stop. I must say, darling, I've really taken quite a liking to you. Stop. The kind of love that would bury me across the Atlantic if need be. Stop. I fear the tape is running out now. Stop. Happy birthday, darling. I love you. Oh, my Does God. That is stop? wonderful. Yeah, because yeah, well, he's doing it. He's, he's doing, doing it like it's a telegram. Then you have like so an inside joke cute. where you <laughs> talk to me in an old-timey voice. <laughs> <laughs> so he made an old-timey Build-A-Bear with, with the Jared, Jared outfit on. It's so cute. That is... Jared, I'm so glad you and Jacqueline adopted me and yeah. my parents. <laughs> I know. Billy Life and Alexis, has only gotten better. They got they got me and Jared a happy anniversary card. Love their children. It was very <laughs> to, my, to our parents. To their, yes, to their parents. But it is also National Kitten Day, and I can't help but think of episode seven and eight that we did, mm. which was about Luca Magnata and uh, him killing the kittens, and then he eventually graduated to killing people. So sorry to bring it down. Yeah, that was really dark. Yeah. Also, fuck you, Luca Magnata. Exactly. Um, okay, so before we get into our case, um, we have merch, and we talked about it last week. You guys went on the site, you bought a bunch of stuff, but anybody that hasn't, go check it out. It's fucking awesome. I designed it myself. It is so good. 
It's very We also need to pick out what stuff we want. We don't even have our own merch yet, but we're doing it today. I ordered... I made the first order on the website to make sure it worked. And it did? So I'll be getting an Only You Can Prevent Serial Killer shirt. I'm going to order my stuff. Should I just order my stuff? We can figure it out. Which one did you... Did you get the bear one or the all text one? Just the all text. All text I'm an all text kind of person. Okay. I think I'm going to get get the the bear. bear. I'm going to get the bear poster, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. The bear poster is a bestseller. Is it? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, the only you can prevent serial killers with the bear. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a me and Billy collab. Mm-hmm. I know. That's our first collab. It is our first collab. Visual, visually. Yes. Okay. I'm also in- <laughs> involved. <laughs> yeah, you're whatever. You don't, You barely contribute to the podcast, Alexis. Yeah. I'm a slacker. <laughs> we don't really need you. Right. I lift right out. <laughs> it can keep on Slide going. Jared in here instead. Yeah. <laughs> we can just talk about Phoenix or yeah, something. Yeah, we would right. talk about Phoenix and, and Jared. Right. Well, I'm going to get a post or two guys yes so we're all that everybody I'm gonna gets a buy poster. you a poster thank you oh, that's mm-hmm. so sweet with our own money <laughs> <laughs> we'll never make money from this podcast no because we're just gonna buy so much merch first that's right yeah that's fine right but, but check it out though and you can find the link on our instagram page. on our instagram yes all right well that's enough of that so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you In 1993, the discovery of serial killer Joel Rifkin on Long Island came in the midst of a year dominated by bizarre and disturbing stories. It began first with the abduction of 10-year-old Katie Beers, held captive in an underground dungeon, and ended with Colin Ferguson shooting dozens of commuters going home on an evening train, resulting in six dead. Newsday, Long Island's local paper, produced a year-end review and described 1993 as Long Island's own Annis Borbellis, the year that violence, abuse, bloody mayhem, and sexual perversion tore at the fabric of the quaint suburbs of both Nassau and Suffolk counties. Joel Rifkin's arrest and subsequent admissions shattered the sense of safety and innocence that Long Island was supposed to represent, and things were never really the same. So the Joel Rifkin case was one that was not lost upon pop culture. In one of my favorite Seinfeld episodes, The Masseuse, Elaine's boyfriend is named Joel Rifkin, and the references to the serial killer are made throughout the entire episode. At a New York Giants game they're attending, the crowd's reaction to her boyfriend's name when it is announced over the loudspeaker prompts her to ask him to change his name. And it's through the entire episode that she's like, you've got to change your name. And he's not, he's like, not about it. She's like, no, well, you've got to change your name. And then at some point he asks. She asks him to change it to OJ. Oh, yeah. Like anything, <laughs> anything, anything but Joel anything Rifkin. Anything but Joel Rifkin, please know. Anything is better than Joel Rifkin, yeah. Which is ironic, too, because Seinfeld was produced by Larry David. Larry David had an episode where they filmed at Dodger Stadium. Oh, my God. And that episode actually helped free a guy of a wrongful conviction. By the way, The Love Long it. Shot is the craziest documentary yes. ever about Not that. only that, our first degree in our last episode mentioned that as like a meter reader, he was going to Jerry Seinfeld's house all the time. And he said he made all these references. You go to mansions, mm-hmm. you go to the average Joe's house, you, you go everywhere. And yeah, you don't know where they you're are. Go. He was explaining how they're kind of like the flies on the wall that no one really thinks is, is just, watching. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, we're just out of your house behind it, reading the meter. Yeah. Like, we know and see everything. We so see the fact the that he was stuff. reading Jerry Seinfeld's house and I told him in the interview about the Jerry Seinfeld episode and he was baffled he had no idea <laughs> he's never seen it no oh my god he will now i told him about it oh my gosh he has to watch it it's yeah. such a good episode so more pop culture howard stern uh executive producer gary del Bate, otherwise known as baba buoy briefly worked with rifkin at a record world location in new york which was actually the record world that i used to go to to get um all of my records which were things before tapes, which were things before CDs, which were things before MP3s. <laughs> Thank you for letting us know what records Spotify. are. I have a ton of records. Yeah, okay. I have three did, record players in this apartment. Yes, and they actually discussed when's the last time you played one of them? Okay. They, <laughs> they don't match my decor, so I haven't set them up. <laughs> so they discussed the bizarre connection um, at length um, on the show. Rifkin was also referenced in the Law and Order Special Victims Unit episode, Tortured. And there was also a 2018 independent film um, that was based on Rifkin's life and crimes. It was called Joel. 
So the pop culture implications since the Rifkin crime spree, somehow, even just when we were just talking about it, it somehow filters the horrors that he committed. I mean, the fact that you can laugh about it in a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, it's fucked up. You're just, it just filters it in a way that it is more palatable for people. But really, the things that were revealed after his arrest and the hatred and indifference he kind of spewed about the women whose lives he stole while he was in custody is truly bone chilling. And in our last episode, as we said earlier, we left off with the arrest of Rifkin after the discovery of Tiffany in the bed of his truck. We still have our first degree Paul with us to take us through the conclusion of his experience. So after Joel was taken into custody on that night, the investigators, they searched the house where Rifton grew up and still lived, and he lived in it with his sister, Jane. And this was a house in East Meadow. And inside his second floor bedroom, they found what is commonly referred to as trophies that he took from all of his victims. He had driver's licenses, dozens of them. He had credit cards. He had piles of women's panties and bras. He had jewelry. He had um, uh, prescription drug bottles that were prescribed to different people, women, purses, wallets, makeup, hair accessories, women's clothing, photographs of women. And many of the items, as they started to break them down, they could, they could match them up to victims of unsolved murders. And this is how they started piecing together the case. And this is, you know, when Rifkin, Rifkin did start to spill, but when his memory was starting to fail, they had these items to fill in the gaps. Is it my turn? And it seems like Rifkin really idolized his serial killer predecessors. There were stacks of newspaper clippings about Arthur Shawcross and a book about the then unidentified Green River killer, who we now know as Gary Ridgway. And when questioned by police, his mother, Jean, who was 71 years old, and his sister, Jan, who was 31, insisted that they knew absolutely nothing of Rifkin's horrifying secret life and both claimed to not have seen his bedroom for years. So our first degree, Paul, knew this family and is currently a parent. So I asked him to try to imagine what Jean thought and felt when she learned her son was this monster that he ultimately is. After he was arrested, I said, I was like, oh, my God. But, you know, that that's when it all, you know, I put it all together. Again, I remember seeing his mom. As a parent, you never, you would never think your child's a monster. Not like that. And I, I could only imagine, she was elderly also. So I could only imagine, you know, how she felt. Jeez. It's shocking. It's hard to put into words. Joel's mother attended her son's arraignment and all the other preliminary court proceedings. We can only assume that she was in total hell. Come on, folks. Step back. Step back. Let these people throw. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say before you must be shocked, Mrs. Ripkin. No comment. There's no emphasis. Ma'am, have you had a chance to talk to your son? What has your son said to you, ma'am? So Rifkin starts to spill. And he tells Trooper Thomas Capers, uh, quote, I'm in a lot of trouble. And he starts talking about Tiffany and then 16 other women who he said were sex workers who he killed. And he was mostly upset that his mother would be upset about what he had done. He was very concerned about that. So for six hours, he writes out a handwritten confession about these 17 murders and tries to put as many details as possible. And he, um, you know, during this six hours, you know, he first asked for a pen and paper. Then he asked for a calendar and a map, and he would list out all the victims, where he met them, when he met them, how he disposed of their bodies, and what trophies that he took of that, you know, clothing, jewelry, licenses, all of that. 
Investigators filled plastic and paper bags with evidence, including a mattress and gardening tools. Police say the use of paper bags indicate there may be blood on the items, since blood samples can be extracted from paper, not plastic. Last Monday, police removed stained pieces of wood and a chainsaw from Rifkin's home. Also found women's jewelry and boxes of paper from Rifkin's bedroom and ID cards from 10 women, including driver's licenses, welfare and credit cards. The police also found evidence in the garage of the Rifkin home, of Rifkin's mother, that they believed to be connected to the murderous acts. And in the garage, they found three ounces of human blood in a wheelbarrow that was there. Tools coated in blood and a chainsaw that had blood and human flesh stuck in the blades. The arrest and constant media coverage of Rifkin's crimes shook loose a memory that Paul had from a day he had at the Rifkin home. It's very hard to jog your memory, but there's certain things you remember. And, you know, uh, again, you're going back to your senses. Um, that is another distinct thing I remember, because looking, I saw the bow saw. The bow saw was laying on the trailer. And I remember looking down and seeing the blade, and it, it was stained the blade um i don't know if it was rust i don't know i you know but i i i do remember that because you know certain things remember about a situation you're looking at this trailer going oh my god what a stench and beyond confessing to murderous acts rifkin made other admissions that were pretty curious he was receiving unemployment at the time of his arrest, and he expressed concern about his income and the cost of hiring sex workers and giving money to his mother. Quote, he said he felt guilty collecting money from unemployment and not contributing to household expenses while spending money on dates. So he's feel- feeling guilty about, about the wrong fucking about things. About not paying his mother money, and he's fine with ki- like taking lives. Yeah. yeah. Cool. It's, That's it's, what he's concerned about. There's a lot of stuff about mom here. Yeah, a lot of mommy lot stuff. Of mommy stuff. So we need to start building a timeline, and we're going to start from the beginning. Rifkin murdered his first victim, and her name was Susie. And he picked her up in the section of the East Village. And so this is what happened. In early March, his mother and her sister and his sister left on vacation. He brings her back. Uh, they have sex. Uh, she sleeps. They use some drugs. She used some drugs. They slept some more. And that was really irritating Rifkin, he said. Because he doesn't use drugs. Yes. And uh, she's also sleeping a lot, too. So then, apparently without any provocation, he picks up a howitzer artillery shell. And he strikes her repeatedly on the head with it. She was still alive, however. And she fights back when he tries to move her. And she actually bites one of Rifkin's fingers deeply before he, he strangles her to death. And he says, I just lost control. I stopped when I get tired. Then he went to bed, and he dismembered her body, but he isn't sure where he dumped the parts. Now, this first case really got me because we're going to bring back to, this is not necessarily my first degree, but it gets really close. My grandfather had the biggest surplus store, one of the biggest surplus stores in Nassau County. It was an army surplus store. Mm -hmm. He sold this kind of stuff. He sold howitzer artillery shells, and he sold it in East Meadow probably a quarter mile from this guy's house. So it's very, very possible. I mean, the store was already gone by the time that I was, you know, the store probably closed in like the late 70s, but it's very possible that that was actually purchased at my grandfather's store. Yeah, there's probably... So that, yeah. So every part of this guy's story keeps popping up. It's like stuff that that is tangentially related to me. And it's, it's, yeah. yeah. I just got fed up and I uh, started hitting her basically beat her till my arms got tired and then we wrestled on the floor and I uh, ended up strangling her I'm starting to realize that I had done something that you know this is not this is not good this this is extremely screwed up so as Joel Rifkin continued to explain what happened on the night he killed Susie which was his first victim He explained that after he killed her, he wrestled her body into a plastic trash bag, cleaned up the blood and signs of combat in his living room, and then he fell asleep. What I think is really interesting is that when I was reading about this, when he was explaining how he slept for like six hours, 
you know, I don't think he was that tired. He didn't have a job. I just think it was some incredible release. Yeah. Where it was just this overwhelming experience for him. And, and he was probably just emotionally exhausted. And he'd been from pent it. up for years just thinking about doing these things. And it was it was something like that. It's disgusting. It's sick. So after he woke up, he dragged Susie down to the basement, draped her body across the washer and dryer, and then he used that as a makeshift operating table to dismember her corpse with an exacto knife. And in the interviews, he calls it a hobby knife. A hobby knife. Which is really small, too. They're deadly. They really are. Um, but to dismember somebody with the, you but know. But also to call it a hobby knife when they're that dangerous. It's like, no, dude, that's an exacto knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's not get it twisted. I'm getting very specific. Yeah. In his mind, as he was doing this, he described this grim task in retrospect as being reduced to biology class. He didn't have an emotional reaction to what he was doing. And to make identifying her difficult, he severed Susie's fingertips and pulled out her teeth with pliers and then jammed her severed head into an old paint can. And the other parts went into garbage bags and then into his mother's car to be dispersed elsewhere. So on March 5th, 1989, a member of the Hopewell Valley Golf Club sliced his ball into the woods along the 7th Green and ended up finding the can that contained Susie's head. The news released whatever information that they could gleam about the woman in the can, hoping that they could identify her. And one of those characteristics was that the Jane Doe was HIV positive. So upon learning this, Rifkin suffered a, quote, major anxiety attack. He followed the case and the police prepared artist renderings of the victim in life and checked them against a list of 700 missing women. But Susie was never identified. Her case remained unsolved until Rifkin confessed in 93. So Joel, he waits more than a year to kill again. And he's vague on the dates. Different reports place the crime maybe about 14 months after Susie's murder. Or, or late in 1990, and the victim was a sex worker named Julie Blackbird. And apparently he chose her because of her, quote, pseudo-Madonna look. Again, his mother is out of town, and he brings Julie back to uh, that house to spend the night with her. At about nine the next morning, he recalls what he said was, quote, completely bugging out, and beating Blackbird with a heavy table leg before strangling her. When she was dead, he considers raping the corpse, and he actually was thinking of doing this to emulate serial killer Ted Bundy, but the prospect of raping this corpse actually repulses him. So he's, he says, no, I'm not going to be that bad, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to bungle the disposal this time, I'm going to go out, and he goes out and he purchases cement and a large mortar pan. And he takes apart the corpse. As before, he places the head, the legs, the arms in buckets, weighted down with concrete. He puts the, uh, the torso um, in a milk crate by itself. And he drives into Manhattan, and he puts Blackbird's head and torso into the East River. He drops Blackbird's weighted arms and legs into a Brooklyn barge canal, and those remains were never found. And we only know what happened to Blackbird today because of Rifkin's confession and from um, the diary that was stashed in in his bedroom. So he had kept her diary. Disgusting. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Nineteen ninety one is when Joel Rifkin started his own landscaping business, and he was renting space at a local nursery to store his equipment. And he complained to his landlord, "I keep losing all my customers." And by the summer, he was falling behind on his rent. His obsession with murder had consumed his life by this point, and he began using this rented space at this nursery as a way to, as a station, sort of for his, for the bodies he needed to dispose of, in transit, as like a middle place where. You dismember at his house, store them there before moving them somewhere else in the middle of the night. So Barbara Jacobs was the next victim of Joel Rifkin's, and she was a 31-year-old who was also a sex worker. Joel picked her up in July of 91 and took her to his home, well, his mother's home, rather, in East Meadow for sex. When she fell asleep, he clubbed her with the same table leg he had used on Julie Blackbird and then finished the job with manual strangulation. This time, though, he was put off by the idea of another dismemberment. So he wrapped Barbara in plastic, folded her into a cardboard box, and placed her in the back of his mother's Toyota yet again. Then he dropped her into the Hudson River. And she was found only hours later by firefighters on a training exercise. But this time, when Rifkin saw the news reports about it, he said it didn't even phase him. And the coroner actually when he did an autopsy on Barbara after finding her, blamed her death on a drug overdose. So, you know, she was buried in Potter's Field Cemetery and, and she was unidentified and they just thought she was somebody who caused her own death. And that was until Rifkin confessed to her murder two years later. So she sat there and her families didn't have answers that entire time. Okay, another somewhat first degree. So he rented this uh, space at the local nursery. That was actually our gardener, and his name was Kev. And, Weird. And, and I remember my dad, who loved to go uh, uh, whenever the you know his favorite show was Cops. He's an ex-con. He would always uh, chase you know fire trucks and stuff with me in the car. And I remember him going down to when they were searching Kev's space, and uh, and he actually yelled out 
We know you had something to do with it, Kev, as a joke. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he was such a dope. Not that funny. That was my dad. Not funny, dad. So Mary Ellen DeLuca was Rifkin's next victim. She was a 22-year-old Long Island native, last seen alive at 11 p.m. on September 1st, 91, when she left a group of, group of friends for a date. Rifkin found her on Jamaica Avenue in Queens and drove her around New York until sunrise. They wound up at a cheap motel. Mary Ellen reportedly was apprehensive about having sex with him at first, but then agreed and rushed, rushed through it and apparently, quote, complained through the whole thing. Then, and this is according to Rifkin, at some point, he apparently asked Mary Ellen if she wanted to die, and she allegedly said yes. But again, that's only according to him. As he strangled her, Rifkin recalled, quote, she did nothing, just accepted it. He remembered her murder as one of the weird ones. And to dispose of the body, he drew inspiration from Hitchcock's frenzy and went out to purchase a cheap steamer trunk, squeezing DeLuca inside it. She was, dumped, she was dumped upstate at a rest stop and found on October 1st nude except for a bra. And without ID, decomposition made it impossible to determine a cause of death, and she was buried nameless, unidentified, until again his confession. So the way he was, he's interesting in a sense, and I just say interesting in a, in a macabre way, I know, but it, it was just logically wise. He's patronizing sex workers on a nightly basis, mm -hmm. near nightly basis, mm -hmm. but he's not killing all of them. So he's sort of, what, what is prompting him to kill one and not the other? Um, because he's, he's going out with a lot of- Multiple a night. Yeah. Like two, three, four nights. Yeah. This right? guy, th this is all he's doing, all he's working for. He's, he's staying with his it. mother, uh, you know, and not paying rent and things because this so is, oh, this can, is what he's yeah. spending his money on. So on a September night, he picks up Yoon Lee, who's a 31-year-old Korean native, and he had been with her before. And he's, you know, he's driving into Manhattan. People have seen him. They yeah. know him. He's a regular kind of, you know, so. And she was actually his second date in an hour. So he had, he had been with one woman, and then he went right back out to another woman. And when he was with Yoon, he was unable to perform. And she sort of, apparently what he said. So he struck her on impulse, and he strangled her while mouthing something about saying, uh, making a big mistake, he said. And it was his first murder of someone that he had actually known beforehand that he'd actually been with beforehand and this is the one time that he experienced something of remorse as opposed to you know the remorse that he felt for making his mother just concerned about him or indifference or whatever and he later said actually i thought i liked her he dropped her in the east river and lee's ex-husband identified her body which fortunately was able to spare her from an unmarked grave so, Joel Rifkin was unable to recall the name of the sixth woman whose life he stole. He murdered her a few days shy of Christmas 91, and he strangled her in his car during oral sex and described the event as very quick. Afterwards, he drove back to Long Island with the body slumped beside him, concealing her under a tarp at his rented workplace at this nursery that we discussed. And then he drove to a recycling plant in Westbury where he had once worked part-time, and he helps himself to a 55-gallon oil drum. And he put this Jane Doe, and we don't have a name, uh, which is really sad, in the barrel and rolled it into the East River. And when he was about to leave, though, he was actually confronted by a patrolman who accused him of illegal dumping. But somehow he persuaded them that he was just collecting junk and he kind God. of got out of it. Like with our first degree... Paul, like, and I, you know, we talked about this. It's like he's had a million of these close calls, I'm sure. So he's many. He's just lucky. Like, this story would be so much different if he actually caught him. It's just lucky. So, this 55 gallon oil drum worked so well for Rifkin that he purchased several more to use as these makeshift kind of coffins. He used the next one on Lorraine Orvieto, a 28 year old manic depressive who tried to control her mood swings with cocaine. So these 55-gallon oil drums worked so well for Rifkin that he purchased several more to use as these makeshift kind of coffins. And he used the next one on another sex worker named 
Lorraine Orvieto, who was a 28-year-old manic depressive who tried to control her mood swings using cocaine. So Lorraine was from an affluent Long Island home where she had been a high school cheerleader and Rifkin encountered her on December of 1991 in Bayshore, Long Island. So they park near a schoolyard fence and she begins performing oral sex on him. He strangles her and he discovers her HIV positive status when he finds a bottle of AZT in her purse. So he keeps the pills along with her ID and her jewelry as more of his trophies to put in his trophy room. And back at the landscaping lot, he stuffs her into a, and her body, stuffs her body into an oil drum and he drives the body to Brooklyn and drops it into the Coney Island Creek. And fishermen find her on July 11th, 1992, which was two months before her family actually files a missing persons report. Now, I know in, in part one of our Rifkin episode, we had something at the end of the last episode that suggested that Paul ended up being assigned to a home of a victim. Yeah. Now, that is Lorraine's home in the home that she shared with her parents. So this house in particular was in Stony Brook in Suffolk County. And Paul was eventually signed this home after he found out about Rifkin and all of that. And he was able to connect the dots that way. When I transferred to Suffolk County, you know, you become friends with co-workers and everything. And, you know, we talked about the the Rifkin case came up in the office because, you know, I talked about it because I read his home, you know. I saw him. I saw what he looked like up close. Um, One of my co-workers was friends with one of the victims. Oh, yeah, he was upset. He was like, she was such a nice girl. Uh, Just unbelievable. And he had said where she lived. I believe it it was the M section of Stony Brook. It was just an ironic, terrible thing, too. And I remember um, when I did read the house, I felt terrible. I just felt awful. I don't, you know... That's the only way I could describe it, because I knew. I think it's really interesting that we're starting to learn what it's like to be, like you, you were talking about, if you're a meter reader, you are the, the, the flies on the wall of, of everyone. But being, mm-hmm. what are the odds that you're going to be assigned the houses of a serial killer, a victim who is... Pretty far away. Stony Brook to East, Meadow. to East Meadow is pretty far. Well, it was after a transfer to Suffolk. Yeah. One week after he killed Lorraine, Rifkin encountered 39-year-old Mary Ann Holloman, his oldest victim. He drove her to the same parking lot where he had taken Yun Lee and he strangled her during oral sex. Later, he recalled the act as, quote, very automatic, not much with that one. He followed the same disposal procedure as with Lorraine back to Long Island and the oil drum and Coney Island Creek. An anonymous caller reported her floating remains to police, and she was identified from dental records and returned to her family for burial. Joel Rifkin was unable to recall the name of his ninth victim, if he had ever known it at all. He remembered her tattoos, a pic of in Manhattan, and the way she fought for her life when he began to strangle her. She, too, wound up in an oil drum, and subsequently in Brooklyn's Newtown Creek where she was spotted floating with the current, but protruding from a rusty barrel. The cocaine in her system prompted detectives to brand her as a drug mule, killed accidentally by the rupture of a drug-filled cocaine balloon, or, you know, condoms filled with cocaine, in her stomach. Police learned their mistake a year later when Rifkin confessed to murdering her. And you see this so much, and you still see this now. If a, if they find a woman that has drugs in her system, they're going to say that like, she oh. she over. I mean, now it's mostly it's overdoses. Back then, um, you know, you start hearing about uh, you, you know cocaine. Cocaine was big back in the early nineties. Uh, it, it's easy for them to say that because then it doesn't go on their stat sheet. Oh, this oh, was yeah. this was an overdose. This wasn't a murder, and it doesn't go in their stat. No sheet. more homicides. Yeah. yeah. So then Rifkin meets Iris Sanchez, and she's working on First Avenue, and this is over Mother's Day weekend. And at this time, he was AWOL from his job at this East Metal liquor store, and this is one of those jobs that he had. Remember, he had a lot of those 
those really short-term jobs across the years. So he picks her up, broad daylight, and he drives her to a Manhattan housing project that he says down by where Macy's has the fireworks. And he strangles her during sex and drives her body across the Brooklyn Bridge. And he chooses a, an illegal dumping site near JFK. And he wedges her body underneath this rotting mattress. And she wouldn't be found until June 93 when Rifkin drew detectives a map. So you see that he, with his pattern, he starts to, uh, he's a little sloppy. And then he, he thinks he has a system with, mm-hmm. the, with the barrels. And he's going, I'm going to use these barrels now. I'm going to use Coney Island. I'm going to drop them in there. This is what I'm going to do. And then he starts getting a little sloppy here. But they're still not finding the victims. It's they, have they found any of these victims? That I mean, they found a few. They found a few. That of they them, actually but, connected to homicide, though. I mean, but that's the thing is that yeah, with with this with with um with Iris Sanchez's body, he doesn't bother putting her in the water, and that was what his mo was was just waiting him down, putting him in water, and um no, so that's what he's that's what he's trying to do. He's trying. It's just strange that he he decides now that he's just going to be a little bit sloppy now. Right. So his next victim was 33-year-old Anna Lopez, and she had three children. He found her on Memorial Day of 92 on Atlantic Avenue in Queens. And after strangling her in his car, he dropped her body along I-84. A motorist stopping to relieve himself found Anna the next day. She was missing one earring, later found in Rifkin's bedroom stash. So then there was Violet... O'Neill, who was a 21-year-old sex worker and was the first victim Rifkin had taken home to East Meadow at his mother's house in nearly a year. He picked her up, strangled her after sex at his mother's house, and dismembered her corpse in the bathtub. He dumped her remains in the waters surrounding Manhattan. Her torso was found in the Hudson River, wrapped in black plastic, while her arms and legs were found in a discarded suitcase. Mary Catherine Williams was actually a high school homecoming queen and cheerleader in North Carolina, and she married a pro football player in 86. They divorced a year later. She came to New York, and she wanted to be an actress. She wind up on the streets, wound up on the streets, and Rifkin had apparently seen Williams twice, and quote, from his quote said, enjoyed a great time before his final pickup of her on October 2nd, 1992. And he actually bought Williams some drugs that night, and he tried to choke her when she fell asleep and dozed off in his mother's car. And she wakes up and she starts fighting for her life. She's kicking. She kicked the gear shift hard enough that it snapped off. But Joel was able to overcome her and he smothers her. And he gets the car finally started. And he moves her body to a Westchester suburb this time where she was later found. And he kept her credit cards and a wicker handbag that was actually filled with costume jewelry. And there was actually so much jewelry in this wicker handbag that detectives briefly thought that the body count was actually higher because there were so many pieces of jewelry in this handbag. Mary Catherine was buried as a Jane Doe until he confessed to her murder. Jenny Soto was a 23-year-old sex worker who Rifkin picked up in November of 92 in Lower Manhattan. Strangled in Rifkin's pickup after sex, she proved, quote, the toughest one to kill, breaking all 10 fingernails as she clawed Rifkin's face and neck. Tired from the struggle, Rifkin claimed her bra and panties, her earrings, her ID cards, and a drug syringe as his trophies. He rolled her body into the Harlem River near the spot where Yun Lee had been found 14 months earlier. She was identified from fingerprint records, and the police initially suspected that her ex-boyfriend murdered her. Jenny's fight for life gave Rifkin pause. Her slaying capped his own frenzied, quote, acceleration period and left him with embarrassing wounds to explain. He wouldn't strike again for 15 weeks, and when he did, he would take better care to hide his tracks. So Joel Rifkin's final rampage involved Lee Evans, a 28-year-old who lived with her mother in Brooklyn. And Joel Rifkin approached her in February of 93, stopping for sex in an abandoned parking lot. Lee started to undress. But then she started to change her mind about the entire thing and kind of asked Joel to look like demanded privacy from him. He refused and he strangled her when she started to cry. 
He buried her in the woods and hikers found her after they saw a withered hand coming out of the ground. A forensic anthropologist was hired to reconstruct her face, but he actually confessed before the model was finished. So this was, I also do want to point this out. It's like people cared. It's like if you're, if you're having a forensic anthropologist reconstruct the face of victim, people cared at least to some degree. To some degree. Yeah. To some degree. And I know, yeah. you know, we have a lot of problems in this case, but some people cared. We can't blanket, you know, categorize all of these law enforcement officers as not caring. Absolutely. So police found Lee Evans's driver's license at the Rifkin home as well. And Lauren Marquez, she was 28 years old. She was from Tennessee. She moved to New York City. She was working on Second Avenue. And Rifkin immediately began strangling her. Didn't even start with the sex, apparently. But he became distracted by apparently a man walked past the car with a dog. And Rifkin almost let her escape. They, they had a fight. And then ultimately, though, Rifkin snapped her neck. And he dumped her body, this time in Suffolk County, in the Pine Barrens. And it went undiscovered until Rifkin's arrest. And then this brings us to number 17 at the final life that he stole. And as we know, Rifkin's last victim, Tiffany Bresciani. She was the first we discussed because this is the one that prompted Rifkin's arrest after her body was discovered in the bed of his pickup truck. And at Rifkin's arraignment, he wore a white jumpsuit, stayed with the judge through the glass, and his sister and mother sat in court, presumably to support him, but we don't really know what their brains were doing. Under heavy security, a stoic Joel Rifkin was led into court. His every move watched by a small army of journalists. The 34-year-old East Meadow man maintained his stone-faced expression as the charges against him were read. Two counts of murder for the death of Tiffany Bresciani, the 22-year-old woman whose body was found in Rifkin's pickup truck at the time of his arrest, and one count of reckless endangerment for allegedly leading police on a high-speed car chase just before his arrest. I am not guilty. At his arraignment, he pleaded not guilty. His lawyer sought to have Rifkin's confession thrown out on grounds that police could not prove that he was ever advised on his rights. They also sought to suppress his initial admission of Bresciani's murder made at the time of his arrest while claiming that police had lacked sufficient probable cause for a search of his truck. So in failing that, he also wanted to have all the various murder charges consolidated into one trial in Nassau, and he was hoping the hometown jury would be more inclined to find him guilty by reason of insanity. Sort of thinking, well, he's a, he's a hometown boy. He's from Long Island. He's, he's a Nassau County kid. Of course, he must be insane because we don't, we don't gr grow people like that here, which is really ridiculous, especially considering all the crazy stuff that was going on on Long Island at that time. So in the middle of the hearing, the assistant district attorney, a guy named Fred Klein, he offers Rifkin this deal, which was ridiculous. For all 17 murders, he offers him 46 years to life Jeez. in return for a, a guilty plea. So, so he could say he, he is guilty of 17, 17 murders, murders and he'd yes. only go to jail for 40-something years? 46 well, years. Because they probably just were yeah. measuring just like how expensive how crazy this was going to be. And they probably looked at his age and they're like, he won't get out if it's yeah. 46 to life. Right. So it probably made sense. It, I would have been offended as a family member of, yeah, definitely. Uh, of oh, a victim. So, but I see their strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to conserve resources. Right. But Rifkin says no, because he's, he An thinks idiot. that he thinks that, you know what, I'm going to be acquitted uh, on grounds of insanity and then go to some cushy hospital. Yeah. So he's transferred to Nassau County Correctional Facility in East Meadow, which my dad was once a member. And the prison van actually carries him right past the high school, which is across the street. Wait, your dad was a member of a correctional facility? You haven't read the book yet, have you? Billy, I don't read <laughs> audiobooks. <laughs> Alexis <laughs> is too busy slaving away at our podcast. Yeah. podcast. Yes. Know, I was doing the math. We've had how many episodes? 40-something? It's a 15-page outline for each one. Think about how many... Think about how much that is. Mm -hmm. I we, could have written fucking we 10 really bucks. We really need a research assistant. I really need help. 
No, but I will read the book once I get, yes. can get a hard copy. The hard copy is coming out August 13th. You can pre-order it right now. Yeah, with our shout outs. Okay, so uh, yes, my father uh, was a member of the Nassau County Correctional Facility. and Meaning it, like an inmate? Yes. Got it. And um, the prison van actually uh, carries Rifkin past the high school, which he graduated from 16 years before, which is also the high school that my parents met at. The high school is actually right across the street from the jail. And in my hometown, and I thought this was like the same thing for everybody's hometown, we had these giant sirens all over, and they would test them every Saturday at 2 p.m., and they were sirens for jailbreaks. So while he was in custody, he um, participates in a number of interviews, and he really starts to shame the victims that he killed, and he called them, quote, nasty girls. And um, he showed very little remorse for any of the slayings, but he actually did say, what a nice guy, that he did feel a little bit of something for the victims. Families. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So the jury selection for Rifkin's first trial began on April 11th, 94. A panel of seven men and five women were seated nine days later with opening arguments began on April 20th. The prosecution described Rifkin as a sexual sadist who relished in his victim's suffering. Quote, he got caught red-handed and now he's using and abusing the concept of mental illness. So in court, and remember, he pled not guilty. Yep. And this is just the Tiffany Bresciani murder because he did not take that deal. So we're in Tiffany's trial. So in court, the mother of Tiffany read a letter to the court about the loss of her daughter. In the subsequent interview transcripts or excerpts, Joel Rifkin described his reaction. I was holding back laughing. I was real tempted when she finished that dumb letter about how good and wholesome her daughter was. I just almost leaned over to the microphone and said, yeah. She was phenomenal for 20 bucks. What a... Oh, my God. What a motherfucker. A Long Island psychiatrist named Barbara Kerwin described Rifkin's psychological test results as the most pathological she had seen in 20 years of practice. So the jurors briefly deliberated. And on May 9th, they convicted Rifkin of murder and reckless endangerment, which was the leading the police on that wild car chase, slow speed chase. 50 miles an hour. Yeah. They gave him 25 years to life for murder, plus two and one-third to seven years on the lesser charge. And then he was transferred to Suffolk County to stand trial for two more of the slayings. And he pled guilty on both of those counts, and he received two more consecutive terms of 25 years to life in prison. So they're starting to add up here. So he's not getting out of jail. And he later pled guilty in court to four more homicides, um, Queens, Brooklyn, and three more counts in Brooklyn. And by January of 96, he had already accrued 183 years for seven slangs with 10 counts outstanding. In 2002, New York's Supreme Court rejected multiple appeal attempts made by Rifkin and his counsel, and when all was said and done, he was convicted in nine out of the 17 murders that he had confessed to. So at the end of it all, Joel Rifkin was slated to serve 203 years to life in the Clinton, New York Correctional Facility, and he'll be eligible for parole in 2197. That's a long time from now. There's no way he's going to be alive. Of course not. It's just, <laughs> it's some 
symbolic. It is symbolic. Like, and even when they give, I mean, in California, when they give death penalties, no one's getting executed in California, but it is symbolic. Like, we fucking would, dude. Yeah. So he goes to Attica in February, in Attica's state prison in February 1996. And he already has a black eye from when he he was assaulted by inmates on Rockers Island. He starts to get tons of threats and taunts from other convicts. It's really a, um, he's basically back in high school. You know, he was never forced to be in Gen Pop, but just him being there, just him being in Attica was enough of a disruption that they moved him into IPC, which is involuntary protective custody. So in isolation, I mean, this is a guy who's probably going to get bored. And he did. And the only thing he found to amuse himself was lawsuits. And this is truly, I mean, if we already don't think he's the biggest piece of shit monster in the world, which we do, this takes it to a whole another level. And I don't think there's really a word to describe it. But a true display of the level of piece of shit this guy is, listen to what he did. So Lorraine or Vieto's family. And Lorraine is the woman who lived in Stony Brook, who Paul was reading the meter at this mm-hmm this family home. So Lorraine Orvieto's family actually sued him in a wrongful death suit. And it was a civil suit. And basically in response to this lawsuit being filed against him, Rifkin responded to the family with a very snide handwritten letter, basically branding this victim, an AIDS carrier who quote, may be responsible for the eventual deaths of numerous individuals, crediting her relatives for also being involved in this and, you know, saying they had shared responsibility and, quote, what might not have been. And I want to add, I was reading a ton about this. And he also just said, it's so funny, like, you guys did not give a shit about your daughter when she was alive. Oh my um, God. And now that she's dead, you're filing a wrongful death suit when she was a drug addict and this and that. And it's like, that's not how it works, dude. Mm-mm. Like. People fix their shit all the time. And you don't know the circumstances which drove them to whatever addiction. You don't know what anybody's going through. Nor do you, is it up to you to determine somebody's worth as a human being? Mm -hmm. So the idea that he's blaming the parents like you didn't care before, it's like, no, she wasn't dead before. She could have turned it around or we were helping her or we were in the process or she was coping with something or life's fucking hard. And she's entitled to do whatever she wants. We don't know what kind of pain she was dealing with. It, this is the most infuriating thing about Joel Rifkin. Because it's like, to make a public statement like that well, about... he seems to like want to have the last word right. in whatever he's doing. Yeah. So like if somebody is trying to like say something about him, he's going to say something about them. I hate it. He's also trying to justify his, his, actions. his actions. And then also... And he's still trying to dehumanize these people. Yeah, he's trying to dehumanize them, but also um, make the make his enemies feel bad for. Oh well, where were you? Where were you when Mm -hmm. they really need you? Is what he's saying. Not only that, at first when he started confessing, he said he felt something for the families, and I bet that was too much to bear. So he started to have to justify it and like backtrack. Yeah, he had to be like, "Uh, that's too much. Too many courts, victim statements. No, it's even I have to with it was Yun Lee was the one that he had known or he had he had known before. He He was the she was the first one who he had known her before. And, and that was remorse. the one that he felt remorse for, from. And it's like, this is too much. I don't want this. I want to turn these back into like inanimate objects for me, basically. I think even that bit of remorse is so interesting because what we, what we don't see with Joel Rifkin is like a religious tie in mm-hmm. where it's like, where does this anger towards sex workers come from? You know what I mean? It's like, he felt bad because he's like, I liked, I think I liked her. It's not like I, I hated her because she was a sex worker. It's like he didn't, you know, usually no, you see this a, hatred yeah. towards sex workers when people are like religious or where you see the Catholic right. guilt but or something. It, but it's like, did he choose them because they would be the easiest to knock off? Of course. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But, but what, I think there's all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't necessarily like you're saying, he wasn't using any kind of r- religious thing for it. It's almost like he's using it as a justification afterwards. Oh, this is, this is why I did it. It was because of, I was, I was, it's because of this. Well, then I think, yeah, if he was, if he murdered somebody that, you know, 
to him, he thought had like a great life, then he wouldn't feel he'd feel way more remorse for. For now, he's like, oh, she's just a drug addict, sex, sex right. worker, anyways. Like, who cares? But his right. plan, I mean, what comes up is really truly crazy. Some yeah, of, some of his plans coming up. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna get to that in a second. Oh my god, just hang tight, <laughs> hang tight. <laughs> it's a wild ride. So next, he sues prison officials and. And he also sues the New York Daily News for branding him HIV positive. Which I'm going to stop you right there because we don't know if he was because HIPAA laws protect him. Right. They protect you even in death. Right. If he contracted HIV and if that had something to do with this. But he did sleep with at least two people who did have HIV or was HIV positive. Yeah. So I think that's fascinating. And it seems like something he's sensitive about. And even earlier, I think it was. Yeah. Earlier in this in part two, he had like an anxiety attack yeah, after, after learning fact, about yeah. one of yeah. his victims being HIV positive. So TB, who knows? We'll never know. We will never know. According to his complaint, the reports prompted a series of inmate assaults that he suffered in January and February of 96, leading to his confinement in a solitary cell for personal safety. So he was getting beat up. And the next time he made headlines, it was in April of 1998. And the news involved a sale of his artwork at the New York State Legislator's Office building in Albany as part of a program to compensate crime victims. 50% of the proceeds went to the New York's Crime Victims Board, while the other 50% went to the inmates themselves. And most of Rifkin's 20 paintings and sketches depicted wildlife or flowers, but one titled The Guardian's Failure showed a barefoot with a corner's toe tag and an angel weeping in the corner, which is very odd. So, and I I have to say, before I say what I'm about to say, I'm really baffled that anyone reputable would like entertain this, this whole thing. But in August of 99, Rifkin unveils his plans for Ola House, which was a proposed shelter for sex workers that would include drug treatment, counseling, medical care, and job training. Ola, Rifkin explained, was both the Hebrew word for sanctuary and the name of a sex worker whose violent death is ascribed Ezekiel 23, 3, 10. Rifkin apparently called this plan a way of paying back a debt, I guess, quote. <laughs> and while the idea drew praise from some quarters, which boggles my mind, including prosecutor Fred Klein, who gave him that ridiculous deal, most objected to Rifkin's inclusion of a motivation room where residents would be scared straight with photos oh of sex workers murdered on the job. What? Who would <laughs> allow him to even... It makes me so mad. A way of paying back a debt, I guess. Dude, I, I mean, the, the whole, I, the whole, I guess part. It's like it's disgusting. There's no conviction in that at all. No. I mean, you see some of this. You see it with um, Son of Sam, who got religions, trying to do good, and you know, do whatever. This is such like a, a way. Berkowitz, also Long Island. Yes, a way of paying back a debt. I guess. It totally just like. No, I mean, he goes on. He says, of these women he hopes would frequent the shelter, these girls think, quote, I can't be touched, he explained. Well, 17 girls thought that, and now they're dead. Of his own victims. He's such a piece of shit. He's horrible. So he's later transferred from Attica to Clinton, uh, which is at Denimora, which is, uh, which you might have seen the escape. Uh, from Dannemora. Mm-hmm. Um, it's considered the Siberia of New York prisons. It's pretty high up there in the mountains. It's 350 miles north of Manhattan. And continually, all of his appeals to get himself um, out of isolation and into some sort of gen pop or anything have been denied. So we know where he is. We know where he stays today. He's no longer a danger. We know about his childhood. We know a lot about this guy. But I think one of the biggest questions, why? Why, why, why? Investigators, lawyers, reporters have probed him countless times. They search for the answer to this question in the books of the weird fucking poetry in his weird writings. And these contain no more motive than his confessions, which were neutral, avoidant. Rifkin has never given a reason. Seventeen that they know of. I'm sorry, but after a while, he must have enjoyed what he was doing to continue to do it. You don't just kill someone for the sake of it. 
uh, it, he had to be getting some kind of thrill out of it. He, he may say he doesn't know why, but deep down inside, that there had to be something. Very grisly, you know, just a, a, a terrible person. So what did we learn today? I think Joel Rifkin had the same chance at living a productive and normal life as anyone else. He had a loving family, a suburban upper middle class background. He had none of the glaring signs of psychopathy, no animal torture, no fire setting, no bedwetting, drug or alcohol abuse, no observable anger issues or violent outbursts. No, like there's nothing in his childhood. No, like had trauma, nothing. There's nothing that could explain this. Because I was looking it up, I was like, okay, I haven't seen anything about the weird shit he was doing as a kid. Was he like a peeper? Was he, was he killing it? Like, there was nothing. nothing that his parents could have seen as a child to to warn them of this. And um, I think parents, even when they see these things, are at a loss because what do you do until your child does something terrible? Right. Well, again, and it goes back to the like, his story was that he was bullied. Like that's the thing. But it's like, is that, is that no, a reason? No, because his, his, he's a like, it's called organized lust killer. His, it has to do with women. And I saw um, some articles that were interesting where some psychologist was waxing curious about his motives. And it was like, well, he was, he was harping the adoption thing. And he's like, he didn't respect his mother for ha- being a young mother and giving him up. So he kind of lumped certain kinds of women together but i don't i mean but it's, it's sort more of, just like a lack of respect maybe he's like well to women irresponsible because yeah. back then even when he was born the 60s right yeah yeah out of wedlock births back then it was not okay to have a kid out of wedlock so for him it maybe that's how he lumped his i'm speculating of course but in the 60s not being married and having a kid was a big deal. Yeah. So maybe he had this shame about himself. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And <sighs> bottom line is, no matter how much you're you're bullied or how much you're um, you hate where potentially that you came from and your abandonment issues, you don't fucking go and kill people. Being that you're bringing up serial killers, um, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. I mean, I was I was a teenager during that. You know, that was 1977, 76. It's sickening, is what it is. And yeah, an encounter like this, of course. I I say it every day as a parent. You know, compared to when I was a kid to now, you keep your eyes open. That's for sure. Um, I always have my eyes open. You just, I don't trust people. And I always say this, as as great as technology is and all that, what a horrifying world to grow up in though. It, it is, I'm, I'm sorry, people don't care about life the way they used to, that's all. And I know that Joel Rifkin, it happened in the early 90s, but still, the way the world is now, it's a tough world to grow up in. I'm gonna send him. I'm gonna send him a hate jail mail. Oh my god! Can we? we yeah, can do that. he's there. He's in Attica. We should. Oh, D- Danamora. He's in Danamora. Yeah. Yeah. Let's send him. Let's a fucking, like. Let's get all can the first we send degreesers. Him one of those, can we send him like one of those glitter bombs for his cell? <laughs> I don't like, think. I, I don't know if you can do that. Can you give them packages? I don't think so. You can. They you they can. are just searched first. Yeah. yeah. So then it'll end up going. No, you should go glitter bomb like the. Go to the first degree group, and then what would you want to say to Joel Rifkin after you just heard all of this? Well, on that note, please join our Facebook group so we can have this discussion in there about what we're going to send Joel Rifkin in jail. Um, it's just the first degree on Facebook. We have a lot of good convos going in there. It is great. It is, and it's honestly, it's popping off. It's getting real good. It's getting pretty juicy in there. And we're also still looking for a name for our listeners. Um, So hot links until we find something better. Hot links. Um, And if you guys are connected to a murder or other stranger than fiction crime, please write us. Hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com or on Instagram at thefirstdegree at Billy Jensen at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek or on Facebook. Hit us up. Billy writes back to all of his messages. I on do. Facebook. He's addicted to it. Mm-hmm. So if you're on Facebook, <laughs> write Billy. If you're on Instagram, write Alexis. And write me in your dreams. Yeah. Even though I do Jack's check all my got DMs. too many DMs. I really don't. So until next week. Remember, only you can prevent serial killers. 
And keep your friends close, but not, not that, that close. close. Happy kitten day. Happy, happy don't step on a bee day. Happy don't hurt a bee day. I live by routines, especially my same day delivery routine with shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com.